Mark chapter 1. Last week we walked through the basic overview of Mark and why we believe that walking through books of the Bible is good and important. It's good for us, our souls, good for us as a church. And uh, we looked at who Mark was, who Mark was writing to, uh, the overarching theme of the Gospel of Mark, this idea of Jesus as a servant king, and how the first half of Mark begins with this just bold pronouncement of Jesus and his divine nature as king. And the second half of Mark transitions to more of his suffering, and he's headed to Jerusalem, his passion, his blood poured out for us. And so this kingly section, chapter uh, 1, opens with a very bold declaration from this Holy Spirit-inspired writer. Um, And the entire opening section paints a very bold picture, not only of who the gospel is, that's right, who the gospel is, but also how um, the gospel is proclaimed with boldness and humility. So let's read it and let's walk through it. Uh, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to suit down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Father, again, we're grateful to be able to come and worship you now through your word proclaimed. And God, we, we ask that that's exactly what we would hear. Not, not my sermon or my thoughts, but Father, we would hear the very word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, illuminated by the Spirit of God, that would do work in us, good work, soul-transforming work, deep work, God, that, that you would meet every need that's in this room as only you can. The fears, the idolatry, the sins, the worries, anxieties, God's Holy Spirit, come today and do the work that only you can do. Uh, we thank you that you are sufficient for that. We thank you that Christ is enough for that and your gospel is enough. And so just make it real in our midst and we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark is busy writing the first written account of the life of Jesus, uh, what we would come to know as the four Gospels, these four written accounts of Jesus' life, mostly because of how Mark uh, opens this first written account. He's the, the first person to associate the word gospel with the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He's the first person to take that word gospel and say, it's him, it's Jesus, it's his life, it's his ministry. Up until Mark began to write, the story and life of Jesus was passed around basically orally, verbally, through the culture of the uh, Judeo-Christian world, uh, the early church. And that was a very effective method in oral cultures. We we think it's not effective because we're not an oral culture. And we play these silly little games where we line up people in a row and we we give this ridiculous sentence to the first person. And then they have to pass it and whisper it to the next person, to the next person, the next person. And you get to the end and the sentence is completely changed and ridiculous. We think... And that doesn't work. Oral cultures don't work. But we have all these rules in that game where you can only say it once and it's a sentence that you don't even care about. It's some dumb thing about a fox jumping over a fence or something like that. And, and, and we don't grasp how in oral cultures it's a very effective means of passing along stories, truth, facts about people and retain them in the culture without losing what's most important. 
So in, in, in that culture, uh, it was very handy and very, very well done to take the facts of Jesus' life, the, the, the reality of his life and ministry, and pass it from person to person, family to family, because there were people still alive who saw it, and they could correct. They could say, no, 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 he didn't say that. No, 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 he didn't do that. And they could adjust if things got out of whack, right? Like, we, we don't know right now how much our minds are turning to mush because of Google and smartphones. I mean, we're so dependent on these devices. Like, if your life depended on you going to a payphone and calling 10 people, we would be dead. We don't know 10 phone numbers. We have it in our phone, right? We, have, we don't remember things like those cultures did. They were just as intelligent as we were, and they were able to pass along the stories of faith and stories of life orally. Well, it got to a point where these people were starting to die who were eyewitnesses to Jesus, and so the Holy Spirit inspired me, let's write it down. Let's write down a, a, a written account of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, so that we don't have to just pass along orally. It can be spread even further than those who are just speaking this truth. Not an exhaustive account of everything he did, but the high points to reveal who he was and why he came. And so Mark went to writing, and Mark begins with this incredible bang, this incredible, powerful opening se- section of his gospel account, his choice of words inspired by the Holy Spirit, were very intentional to make a very strong declaration about who Jesus was and why he came. In fact, there are really six bold declarations recorded by Mark about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you have no doubt what this book's going to be about when you see these six things. So the first thing is the very first word, beginning. In the original Greek language, it wasn't the word the, the article the, it was actually the word beginning. And so when you're studying the original language of the New Testament, the very first word in every sentence is the point of emphasis for that sentence. So the point of emphasis for Mark in this first sentence is the word beginning. Mark, being a Jewish Christian, Mark knows the Old Testament. He knows how the Bible starts in the beginning, God. So Mark knows when he starts his, the first gospel account with the word beginning, he knows where everybody's mind and heart is going to go. Oh, we've heard this before. In the beginning, God. Now, this is the beginning of the gospel. Just as God broke in and began to call everything into existence through this new thing called creation, which didn't exist until God called it into existence, now God is again breaking into creation, this time in a human body. This time in the incarnation. Again, never been done. So with the same awe and reverence that we have of God calling everything into existence from nothing... So now we have the same awe and reverence of God coming in the form of a human, coming and taking on flesh. It's, it's that epoch changing. It's, it's that era in, introducing. It's, it's mind-blowing that God would do this. No other religion has this, right? No other religion has God becoming a man. No other religion has God coming into our world. It's all God on the mountain. Follow the rules, jump through the hoops, hope you do enough. You don't really have assurance, but hope you do enough so that when you die, you've made it up the mountain. And Christianity comes along and says, no, God came down from the mountain and became one of us, walked in our shoes, put us on his back, and took us to the top of the mountain. There's, no, there's nothing else like this. Christianity is God comes to us, becomes one of us. He walks in our shoes. He suffers. He's hungry. He's tired. He's abandoned. He's in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is big. This is huge. And that's just the first word. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit's inspiring Mark to conjure up. Secondly, he adds, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So, beautiful word in the Greek, the gospel, euangelion. Gospel, euangelion. Go ahead and say that. Euangelion. euangelion. It's just one of those words that's fun to say. Like, I don't usually share with you the original words because I don't want to mess them up. But some of the words are just beautiful and you want to say them. Euangelion. Uh, E-U, I should have put it on the screen. E-U is the first two letters. It's the root word for our word eulogy. So, so we know what a eulogy is. We go to a funeral and we speak good things about the people that we just lost. Like... Like, you've been, if you've been hanging around Scott in the, in the bonds the last couple of days, you've heard people speak those things about Scott's dad, and you'll hear more of that if you're at the funeral this week. This good memories, good things that this person was able to do. That's good, good news. And then, uh, that, that's good, rather. And then, angelion, is a, the root word there is, is angel or messenger, someone who brings news. And so together, you, good, angel, angelion, good news, is the gospel. Euangelion, the first word of Matthew, just to contrast this, is the word uh, biblios, which it means a scroll or a written account. So the very first word in the Gospel of Matthew is, here I'm giving you a written account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he goes into this long genealogy, which would have been important for Jews who Matthew was writing to, to know that the first words of this Gospel account were written on a scroll, something that they were very confident in. But Mark is inspired differently. He's speaking to Gentiles. I'm not giving you a written account. I'm giving you good news. I'm giving you a story. A tale about this man, Jesus Christ. Because I, I want to paint this picture in your mind. This word, uh, euangelion, was already understood by both the Greco-Roman and the Jewish culture. Uh, Mark, written to Gentile people, but Mark was also Jewish. He had a grasp, and the people he was writing to had a grasp with Jewish life and customs. So again, contrast this with Luke, written to a more Gentile audience. Luke did a lot of explaining of Jewish customs and traditions. Mark doesn't do that because it's assumed that his people know these Jewish customs and laws. So so Mark, writing to this this Gentile audience who understood Jewish customs and traditions. Um, And so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done over 100 years before this, all through the Old Testament there were accounts of battles, there was news of those battles would be sent back, and the Greek word euangelion was used to describe the news about those battles. Here is some news. In the Greco-Roman world, the word euangelion was often used in the worship of the emperors. So there's an inscription on a calendar from 9 BC about the Roman emperor Augustus, and it says the birthday of the god, it's talking about the Roman emperor, the birthday of the god was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings, the beginning of good news. This Roman emperor has been born and it's good news for the world, euangelion. Now, what's neat is whenever the word euangelion is used by the Greeks and the Romans, it's always in the plural. In other words, here's some news among other news. Whenever the Bible uses the word euangelion, it's always in the singular. This is the news. There's no other news like this news. This is as good as it gets. And so what is this news? Or rather, who is this news? It's, it's a man. It's Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's the gospel Jesus proclaimed, which was himself. The message that Jesus proclaimed was the message about his life, his ministry, what he had come to accomplish. Jesus comes from the Old Testament name Joshua, which means God saves or Yahweh saves. He is the gospel. God will save. Very common name in first century Palestine, Jesus. A lot of dudes had that name. Uh, there was a, a show on the Discovery Channel several years ago uh, where they had discovered a, a bone box in Osirari. And it was big news because the name Jesus was on it. So maybe this was his bone box. Maybe he didn't really rise from the dead. 
And uh, the thing is, if you read it into the backstory of that discovery, it would have been discovered 30 years prior, and the Israeli archaeological authorities had already dismissed it. Because they're like, a bone box from the first century that says Jesus? That could be anybody. That name was very, very common. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but when you add Christ to that, it becomes very specific about who this is. Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, very specific description about who this man was. Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ? The chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, right? This, this title refers to the one whom the Jews have been waiting on for hundreds and hundreds of years. He is here. He's finally come. And then lastly, Mark says, Son of God. Mark's favorite title for Jesus, used more than any other. We'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on this in a few weeks, but we'll leave it at this. It, it only adds to the significance of Jesus' identity. God's true Son. God's perfect Son. God's only Son. Yes, we are sons and daughters of God, but Jesus is the Son of God on a whole other level that we'll never attain. All right? Thirdly, this Old Testament quote, beginning in, in verse 2, tying Jesus to Yahweh. So, this third bold declaration, as though Mark didn't start off with enough of a boom, he jumps right into an Old Testament quotation, which is actually strange for Mark. All right, Mark, not writing to a Jewish audience, he doesn't quote the Old Testament a lot. Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot because he's writing to a Jewish audience. Mark doesn't, which, because of its, the rareness of it, makes it more significant that Mark would include an Old Testament passage. Um, more important. So it says here from the prophet Isaiah, uh, if you have good footnotes in your Bible, uh, you will notice it's actually three different Old Testament references that make up this quote. Exodus 23.20, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43. So if it only says the prophet Isaiah, but it's actually three references, what, what's going on here? It's just kind of shady, kind of, kind of sketchy. Well, Mark was practicing what was common in Jewish culture. You, you only quote the primary source. And Isaiah 43 was the primary source. In fact, Isaiah 43 is quoted by all four Gospels in reference to John. This is what John is fulfilling, the Old Testament prophecy. The phrase that is, uh, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, taken from Isaiah 23.20, is not a reference to what you might think Moses. is actually a reference to a divine messenger from Yahweh. From Malachi 3.1 is an exact quotation. Malachi 4.5 combined with it identifies the one who will come to prepare the way as Elijah. In other words, Elijah will come and prepare the way for the Lord and then if you add Isaiah 43 to that, um, it says, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's in all caps. And, and I think we shared with you before, when you see in the Old Testament, the word Lord in all caps behind that, the Hebrew word behind that is always what? Yahweh. Covenantal name of God. Yet when Mark quotes it in Mark chapter 1, he just says, Lord. He didn't say Yahweh or the covenantal name of God. He uses kurios, which could refer in a more general sense to any dude, Lord, sir. But in this context, he's referring it to one dude, one person, Jesus Christ. So, so get this. These Old Testament quotes intended to create this expectancy of Yahweh to come. Mark uses that expectancy to make this connection with Yahweh of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ, Son of God, the Lord who has come. Like Mark cannot be more clear 
more bold in, in what he's trying to say. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is this new creative work of the God, God breaking into our world. Not because his previous plans have failed. I've done all these things. It hadn't worked. I can't save my people. Let me try this now. It's because it's a continuation of what Yahweh God has always been doing. It was the plan to begin with. Just as Yahweh's been doing this in the Old Testament, the people have been preparing for him to come again, preceded by the messenger Elijah. So now here's the fulfillment of it. Here he is. This is the one. This is the Christ, the one who's the fulfillment of of this incredible plan of God. And it says, he is the Lord and his way is already set. Interesting, so as you're studying through Mark, notice this, the word for way uh, every other time that word is referenced in Mark, it's always in reference to the way to Jerusalem, the way to the cross. So even in the first opening section, you have a hint of why he came and where he said it and what his mission is. The fourth bold declaration here by Mark is, is pointing out the dress of John the Baptist, tying him to Elijah. So we have... Going into verse 4, this immediate transition, there's no transitional sentence, there's not even a conjunction, it just says, John appeared, boom, John appeared. And uh, we get very little about John in the Gospel of Mark. We know from the other Gospels, like Luke, that John was actually the cousin of Jesus, who leapt in the womb of Mary's sister Elizabeth when uh, the two pregnant sisters were getting together before the boys were, were born. It wasn't a Dorito that made him leap. It was the Holy Spirit, it says. He was filled with the Spirit, and he could leap because he wasn't just a a gob of goo, organic goo. He was an actual person, right? A person who could be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born into the world. So just let your theological minds twist into a pretzel on that one for the rest of the day. Interestingly, all the gospel accounts record John's ministry before Jesus' ministry. Even the book of Acts mentions John's ministry preceding the Jesus' ministry. Even Jesus himself mentions John had to come before I could come. And the one thing John is known for is his peculiar dress. Camel's hair, leather belt, and eating locusts and wild honey. Now the diet wasn't that unusual. If you live in the wilderness eating locusts, that was clean by Jewish law. Not that big of a deal. Good protein. Wild honey, that would be delicious. We would even want to eat that now. We sell that now as a special uh, commodity. Uh, the dress, according to one commentator, was not common wilderness dress. It was dress that was intended to bring to mind the prophet Elijah. Now, John knew the Old Testament passages. He was a, a good Jewish boy. He would grow up hearing the Old Testament read, learning the Old Testament. So he knew passages like 2 Kings 1.8, where it says, They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Sometimes we had this idea of John the Baptist, like he's just this crazy old guy living in the wilderness, eating whatever he could forage, and just kind of a little bit out of his mind. You're not sure that he's really all with it. But everything John was doing was intentional. Like he knew what he was doing. He knew that the Jews would see him as a prophet like Elijah in the way that he dressed. He knew that there was a very widespread understanding among the Jews that Elijah would appear before the coming of the Lord. And he knew what his ministry and his mission was. He knows what he's doing here. He knows he's pointing people to the coming one, the coming Lord, the coming Messiah. John dressed like this, Mark writing in this detail, again making this connection between the coming of the Lord expectation the Jews had about Yahweh and the person and work of Jesus. You Jews believe that when Elijah shows up, the Lord is coming. 
Well, here is one like Elijah, and here is the Lord. His name is Jesus. So see that and know that. The fifth bold declaration of uh, Mark here is the location of the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark and all the gospel writers make a point to to make sure we know that John is in the wilderness. So think um, arid, think uh, desert-like, don't think Sahara. It's not devoid of life. But I think, think maybe Arizona, parts of Arizona, that might be what it was look like. What would it look like? The significance was this: God often met His people in the wilderness. Right? God met Moses at the burning bush where, in the wilderness. God brought His people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness. They had to wander for forty years, but they had to go through the wilderness to get to the Promised Land. Uh, So many of David's psalms were written when he was trying to run from those trying to kill him and running away from Jerusalem in the wilderness. Elijah was met by God in a still small voice. Where? In the wilderness. The wilderness even had a a, a place, was described by some prophets as a place of hope, like Jeremiah 2, 2 2-3. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. So to the everyday Jew in the first century, the wilderness was a place to meet God. And then to have this guy dressed like Elijah out there proclaiming this this message of repentance. Okay, repentance, we know what that is. Turning from sin, turning to God. Repentance is not emotional as much as it is volitional. A choice of the will, a choice of the desire of your whole self, your whole life change. You're not just emotionally turning your mind and heart. You're, you're completely turning your mind and heart away from sin to God. And for these Jews hearing this, it would be turning from sin back to the Lord in the wilderness through baptism in water. Like there's all this Old Testament stuff going through their mind. No, no wonder they were flocking to him. This was at the very core root of their identity as God's people. This was huge for them. When the nation of Israel first really became the people of God was in the wilderness. When God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. No wonder they were streaming from the cities to go see this interesting guy. And then to have this expectation that in the wilderness you will meet God and have this guy dressed like Elijah saying, One is coming, get ready, one is coming. Clearly joining the person and work of Jesus to the wilderness expectation of the people. And then lastly, the message he preached. Not just repentance and baptism. But, but, but John's saying, one stronger and mightier than me is coming. John, the Baptist, whom all of you in Jerusalem and Judea, so it means people in the country, people from the city, the elite and the rural, flocking out to see this guy. John, whose ministry was so widespread and effective that in 55 AD, Paul came across disciples of John in Ephesus, hundreds of miles away, who had never heard of Jesus, yet they were still disciples of John, right? John, who, who, um, who who's intentionally dressed as Elijah, calling people in the wilderness to be baptized, many people wondering if he was the Messiah. John himself, who's saying, I'm not even worthy to do the task of the lowliest slave to untie the sandal of the one who's coming, stronger and mightier than me. Not only is it that the message of John, one stronger and mightier than me, who, who I'm already pretty amazing, he would never say that, but he was, right? But his message was also, I'm baptizing you with water, the one coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
So seven times this phrase occurs in the New Testament. Six of those occurrences, it is directly related to this scene. John saying, I baptize you with water. One is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The only other occurrence that is in the New Testament of this phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, is in 1 Corinthians 12, when it mentions that all Christians have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It is not biblically possible to make a case that to be baptized with the Holy Spirit is some reference to an experience apart from salvation, like a second blessing that you should seek or want. If you are a Christian, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You have been immersed in Him, or you wouldn't be a Christian. You can't become a Christian and not receive the Holy Spirit. You would still be spiritually dead if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what gives you life, what allows you to repent and be regenerated and born again. Even more significant than that, all right, if that wasn't good enough, about what this says about Jesus, John's baptism with water was incredibly significant. Um, there's nothing like this kind of baptism in the history of God's people. This was completely new. They had ceremonial cleansing and ceremonial washing, but they didn't have this full immersion in water by someone else. They had no concept of this. All the other baptisms that they practiced before this were self-baptisms. I just kind of wash, maybe even immerse, but I do it to myself. <clears throat> they never had any instances of somebody baptizing somebody else. This was completely new. It was a baptism proclaimed that like this is an act of God. You can't just do this yourself. Someone outside of you has to come and do this for you. And it's only in conjunction with repentance of sins. You had to receive this. This was so unique that it became part of John's name. John the baptizer. Like, like this was completely different. Like we've got to give this guy this name now because what he's doing has never been done. So they called him John the baptizer from then on. It wasn't because he was the first Baptist or Southern Baptist. It's because what he's doing had never been done. But as incredible as that was, even more was this baptism promised by John about the coming one, the stronger one. He baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew who knew the Old Testament. They knew clearly in the Old Testament the only one who directs the Spirit of God is God. The only one who had the prerogative and the power to direct the Spirit of God to do anything was God himself. God alone had this power and ability. So John and Mark are clearly stating this Jesus, this stronger one who's coming, who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, he is acting in ways that only describe God. And they knew that. They knew that's what he was saying. So in multiple ways, Mark begins this gospel boldly declaring who Jesus is and partly what Jesus has come to do and be. Mark's not beating around the bush. John's not beating around the bush. It's a bold declaration from both of them. This one coming, the Messiah, the stronger one, he is the continuing work of Yahweh in the Old Testament, but in a new way, in a way that could be called the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is good news. So how do we respond to this, right? First, I'd, I'd say respond by being captivated once again by Jesus. Being captivated once again by Jesus. See him in all the, the clarity, the boldness, the power, the might, the awesomeness that he was. Like maybe we have just heard it so much that it's become so common that we've lost the, the, the ability to be captivated again by Jesus. 
Like it's just, oh gosh, yeah, I've heard that story. I've read that gospel. I've heard this sermon before. But Jesus, we know, he was really amazing. But uh, do you know what just dropped on Netflix? Right? I mean, it is as C.S. Lewis said. God offers us a full expense paid vacation anywhere we want. And we're content to sit in our homes and binge watch Netflix and eat cheese puffs in our underwear. Right? That, we're far too easily pleased. God offers this, this, himself this amazing, incredible, intimate relationship with him to be captivated by Christ continually. And we're so content for things that are meaningless, that are not satisfying, that fail to even come close to this picture, this image of Jesus. We have a culture filled with people like that. People we work with, people we live around, people in our families, including ourselves at times, that, that terminate all of our desires, all of our hopes, all of the, the passions of our heart. We terminate them on things that are absolutely transitory, temporal, but just here and gone. Like it's this, and then that ends. Okay, what's next? Okay, then it's that. You know, Jennifer and I, we finished watching Lost this week. I'll save my opinion later. But it's like this, this, this emptiness. Like, okay, what are we going to do now? You know, if the basis of our relationship is watching this stupid show that was written by people on crack, then what, what do we do now? What do we watch next? It's like this, this void that we find in our, in our relationship. And, of course, it's quickly, you know, you realize how ridiculous that is and your relationship's not built on watching the same TV shows. But, but that we do that all the time. Right? We, we, our hearts are so captivated by things that are so small. So I'm, I encourage you, like, ask the Holy Spirit this morning. Captivate my heart, my mind once again for the bigness and greatness of Jesus. Like, don't let my heart settle for things that are so small. I want to be captivated by Him above anything and anyone else. I want Him to have the greatest passions and desires of my life. So, so be captivated again by Jesus. Secondly, um, see in Mark and John the boldness of, of understanding the truth of Jesus and the boldness that we can have in sharing the truth of Jesus, the boldness that we can experience because of the truth of Jesus, because, because it, it is true and it is powerful. Like, in ways that can only be described in divine language, the same God working in creation, working throughout the history of the Old Testament, He became a man. And he started doing stuff that was recorded in this book. And it's been faithfully passed down to us. And we've been providentially put in this city and the people that we're in life with to bring this good news of Jesus to as many people as possible until we drop dead. There are a lot of things that we can be bold and confident about that aren't as true and certainly aren't as powerful. Like last week, I was becoming very, very bold and confident that Denver was winning that game. Like, I just knew. Before, before the game, hanging out with some friends, about to watch the game, I was telling them, like, there's no way the NFL is going to let Peyton lose this game. I said that with a little tongue-in-cheek, right? But, but I've watched, this is like my 30th Super Bowl I've watched. I've seen a lot of Super Bowls. You've seen championship-caliber defenses that are really hot and teams that are young and unproven. And they haven't, haven't shown themselves to, to, to have, have had it, right? And so I just had this feeling, like, there's no way Denver's losing this game. And I, and I was very bold and confident and arrogant about that. The reality is, I've been wrong about that a lot. 
Because there are uh, teams with good defenses that get beat, and there are young, unproven quarterbacks who win the Super Bowl. It's happened. It's amazing how we're bold and confident about things that really don't matter, like music and movie and food and coffee and style and culture. Like, like we really think we know this is it. We're very confident, even arrogant about that. That has nothing to do with the, the biblical boldness that we are to have that is rooted only in the gospel, only in Christ. There's, there's a boldness, a confidence there that is supernatural because it comes from having the Holy Spirit in us, from knowing the gospel, from knowing Jesus. Confidence in the Bible is not rooted in what we know. It's rooted in knowing Him, boasting in Him. And as long as our focus is on Him, and we're putting Him out front, we're putting the spotlight on Him, we can be incredibly bold. Like there are things that we can know with certainty because of the gospel, because of Jesus, that we can pursue with passion and vigor and boldness. Like you don't get dressed up in camel's hair, go into the wilderness and say the Messiah is coming unless you're totally convinced God has called you to do that. But if you have been called to do those kinds of things, to take those steps of faith, to have those hard conversations with people you love, to sacrifice whatever the Holy Spirit's calling you to sacrifice, to give whatever He's calling you to give, to sacrifice time, energy, to make Jesus known. If He's calling you to do that, and if you're His, He is calling you to do that, then you can go with incredible boldness. You can put on the camel's hair and the leather belt and go stand in the wilderness and talk about Jesus. Not... Literally, please. No, I'm speaking metaphorically. Worry about Tom out there on 65. Do you really believe that Jesus is the gospel and Jesus can save and change the lives of people in your life? Do you really believe that if you simply point people to Jesus and the gospel, the Spirit of God has already been working on them? And you're joining him in a work that he's already doing and he's saving them, not you and your ability to articulate the gospel. Like, it's not up to you. You're just the messenger. The power's not in you. It's the Spirit of God. And in God's Word, guys, there is universe-creating, spiritual life-creating, resurrection power in God's Word. When we speak it, inspired by the Spirit of God, lives can change. Not because of us. Because the power is in the Word and in the Spirit. So be bold. Declare it. Proclaim it. Don't shy away from that. But also notice the humility of John. Lastly, learn from, learn from the example and see his humility. Now, like, don't, um, I worry sometimes we swung the pendulum of gospel centrality and the meta narrative of Scripture so far that we're afraid to learn from the examples of men and women in the Bible. Like, we're so scared about making them heroes and saviors that we're, we're scared to say things like, well, John was a humble and bold guy. We can learn from his example. Like, the main point of David and Goliath is not how we defeat our giants with our faith in a big God. Every main point of the Bible does point to Jesus and the gospel. In every text, we should run to the cross like Spurgeon told us. But we can learn from the examples of men and women in Scripture. Learn from when they had faith in God. Learn from when they made a shipwreck of their family and gave in to sin because they all did it. We can learn from examples and not committing adultery and murder and turning your family into a mess. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10... After he's talking about the Israelites, how they were under a cloud, they passed through the sea, they were baptized, um, and, and they all drank from the same spiritual rock, and they drank the same spiritual bread. He says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now these things, talking about the Israelites in the Old Testament, took place 
as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Good examples, bad examples. We can learn from positive and negatives without turning these men and women into the heroes of the Bible. All they did that was good was by God's grace. And yet they were still very broken and flawed people, just like us. So learn from the example of John. See his humility. Humility, which is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, how sorry I am, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is being so others-centered and others-focused, you don't give much thought to yourself. John was so consumed with this call of God to prepare the way of Jesus. John was constantly pointing people to Jesus. I just don't imagine John putting on the camel's hair and the leather belt and standing in front of a mirror saying, man, what are people going to say about me? I just don't imagine that happening. He's just like, I got to do this. I know I have to do this. This is why I was created and put on the earth to go and point people to Jesus, which is the same call God has given every one of us. No matter what career you go into, no matter what your family looks like, no matter where you live, the same call to point people to Jesus has been given to you. So the more you focus on that call, the more you focus on Jesus, the more your mind is about Jesus and other people who need Jesus, the more humble you become. Not by thinking of yourself less, but by thinking of him more. Thinking of others more than yourself. You can say with John in John 3.30, he must increase Christ, but I must decrease. At the end of one of the most amazing, spectacular, successful ministries the Bible ever records. He's like, I'm out. It's not about me. It's about him. So see this blending of boldness and humility in the example of John. Guys, you can't be truly bold for the gospel apart from humility. And you can't be truly humble about the gospel apart from a bold, confident faith and trust in Jesus. Like you really know this is true. He really is who he said he is. He really came and did what he said he did. That he is so amazing we can forget ourselves and we can give our lives away to make him known. That, that we aren't the savior of people, that Jesus is. And so we point them continually to him. That the hope of this city isn't the crossing church, it's Jesus. And so let's give ourselves to point to him and make him known. And the beautiful thing is, the gospel says Jesus is working to make all this possible. He's working in us to make this happen. It may not always appear like he is, but he is. That's what he said he was to do. He's making us like Christ to declare the glory of Christ to the nations. And that's what we're after. Father, we thank you so much that you came. You sent your son to be the savior of the world, to die for the sins of the world. You, you, you've created this people of God that have been declaring the glory of Christ for many, many years. And here we are, 2,000 years later. <clears throat> this church plant in Monroe. <clears throat> It's the people of God focusing our hearts and minds on Jesus. God, we're as prone to, to, to sin as anyone is prone to sin. We're, our hearts are prone to wander as any hearts are. <coughs> and so captivate us once again by the glory, the beauty, the, the wonderfulness of Jesus, his gospel, his life, his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection. And then send us out with bold humility to make him known. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you this morning to respond however the Spirit.